Hey, y'all, it's Thursday. We're excited for the show. We'll be talking about Beyonce, the latest on YouTube, and I'll be sitting down with actor Alexandra Ship. It's always a good show when you can talk about Beyonce. Oh, yes. See you on the timeline. <laughs> Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. She's Sylvia Obel. It's Thursday, and you are watching AM to DM. <laughs> the Golden State Warriors lost to the Toronto Raptors in Game 3 of the NBA Finals last night, but the real L was taken by the owner's wife, who had the nerve to annoy Beyonce, Giselle Knowles, Carter courtside. Brand Doc tweeted this clip. Beyonce is so annoyed by this woman, and Hope gonna hear about it on the jet. This Lit video. I mean, honestly, the video keeps getting worse. Like, the woman <laughs> keeps talking over her. And then look at Beyonce's face. Let's do live commentary. Look at her face. Please. This is the part where she's like, bitch, if you don't move it's out like, there. It was leaving. that nudge. Like, if I'm you don't leaving. move out my way. They were trying to have, like, a nice little comment. Hey, y'all, the people I actually like across the court for me. No. What is she doing? Oh, what is she doing? Unpack this for me. Like, why is it so irritating when someone is, like, reaching over? Well, because first of all, I'm right here. Yeah. Second of all, I'm Beyonce. <laughs> You Indeed. talk to me. You're sitting next to me and you're choosing to talk to Jay. <laughs> and also, third of all, it's her man. Yeah. So then it's like disrespectful. I'm like, just a code, girl code right. line situation. Right. Fourth of all, she's wearing Michelle Obama's boots. Also that. A very important point. We all know Michelle, my, uh, our, first our former first lady, wore those boots on uh, her book tour. And mm -hmm. here's this woman wearing Michelle's boots, ignoring Beyonce, just making... That more fouls than were happening actually on the basketball court. We call that chutzpah. And then you know? Jay-Z was um, engaging with it for a little bit, but some people are wondering if that was payback for that time that Beyonce and Jake Gyllenhaal were doing that court right. side to him. Right, and he did not look pleased <laughs> no, with that No, just that epic photo all. of him just looking like, what is, what is happening? I just don't understand someone's priorities when they're sitting next to Beyonce a and whole they don't Beyonce. talk to Beyonce. It's I don't just, get it. And, you know... What's the crazy thing? Well, the beehive didn't get it either. So what they did was they found this woman because, when I, let me tell you something, the, the beehive don't play. They, they're fastened the FBI. They went down her, warrior lady, warrior Nicole, her Instagram handle, that is, and yes. they left a thousand million bees in her comment section, and she had to disable her Instagram comments. Wow. Well, it a full new cycle. Quickly. It escalated. The Warriors might lose the whole series just based off of this karma. And it's going to be her fault. Oh, boy. Well, I think Tara <laughs> Brown summed all of our feelings up with this tweet. I would leave the earth if Beyonce looked this ready to smack me. Same. <laughs> Same. Uh, yes. <laughs> like, what else do you have to live for? You failed. It's like game over. It was a video game. Yeah. Beyonce gets mad at you. Boop, 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 boop. And like, that's the end. It's the end. You get more extra life. I mean, like, shoot me into another universe. Put me in another solar system. Like, she I'm done here. Friend. I had I'd never else. let her forget it. We wouldn't, I'd have to delete her number. There you go. Well, let's take it to the timeline. Do you think Warrior Nicole had this firestorm coming, or is everyone doing the most? Let us know using the hashtag AM2DM. You know who else embarrassed themselves yesterday? Who else? YouTube. Hmm. They announced that the site will prohibit videos that promote discrimination or segregation a day after the video platform was criticized for how it handles anti-gay content. In theory, this sounds like a good idea, but the rollout has been wildly confusing. Tom Namico tweeted a recap of everything that's happened. YouTube's inability to set and force policies in a cogent way matters. Catch up. Steven Crowder is okay. Tuesday. Steven Crowder is not okay. Wednesday. Crackdown chaos. LGBT harassment. Here to help us make sense is BuzzFeed News senior reporter Ryan Broderick. Hey, Ryan. Hi. Help. 
What is going on? Uh, I mean, I know as little as you guys do. I mean, yesterday was a mess. They kept rolling out policy changes within policy changes. And it seems like they really only got rid of about five accounts. And one of them was a history teacher's whose was only up for educational purposes. So, I mean, I can't imagine a worse circus to do this with, you know? Yeah. And then, like, in the midst of the confusion, there was that tweet about the T-shirt and the monetization. And because we have the privilege of working together, (laughs) I audibly heard your reaction in the newsroom. Can you explain your reaction and why it went down that way for you? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was a stressful day, and I was trying to make sense of what was going on. And then when they announced that it's about T-shirts, I screamed. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, this is just, it's, it's lunacy. It's like, I mean, for a company as large as YouTube to be rolling out policy yeah. changes that are controversial, they're complicated, and to do it inside of a Twitter thread with, a, like, basically just one person. You know, Carlos is at the center of this. That's, a, that's absurd. And then for them afterwards to go back and be like, actually, it wasn't really about the T-shirts. I swear, it's about a different thing. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm no closer to understanding what's going on. Nothing really seemed to happen except for, Maybe a dozen channels can't run ads anymore. Yeah, this whole thing was very, very perplexing to me to witness. And of course, you mentioned that YouTube seems like such a large and well-resourced company that maybe they would have orchestrated a better response to all this. Um, But do you get any sense at all that YouTube understands that this is about more than monetization? No. Uh, I mean, look, I, I want to be optimistic and I want to think that, you know, there are a lot of really serious conversations going on in YouTube right now about what the platform is and what it should be. But part of me thinks like, I mean, did they just discover Twitter yesterday? Like, did they just like figure out that maybe you shouldn't send tweet after tweet after tweet? I mean, it's just kind of silly. And I'm not even sure if the, mon- the demonetization will have any impact. It just means that a lot of really angry users still have their channels and a lot of tweets to screenshot and agonize over for the next month or several years. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of those YouTubers, have any prominent YouTubers spoken up about wanting to take their content elsewhere or maybe some type of just, I wouldn't say cancellation of YouTube, but just some type of action? Yeah, I mean, like, every time one of these platforms tries to, like, crack down on this, there's, like, a bunch of, you know, white nationalists and far-right influences that are all like, we're all going to Gab. No one's on Gab. Like, that's not a real (laughs) website. And, like, yesterday I saw a talk about a couple different apps that could be alternatives to YouTube. But honestly, like... I don't know, man. Like, they're just probably going to stay there. They'll make new accounts. Uh, They don't really need the ad revenue. From what I've heard, ads aren't that useful for YouTubers anyways. I think a lot of these people are doing it for the love of being hateful to begin with. So I I just, I don't see an easy way for this to wrap itself up neatly. And I sort of feel like like with all YouTube drama, it's just going to drag on forever. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's (laughs) That's a positive outcome. things you mentioned is that uh, as the result of this policy, they sort of indiscriminately banned whoever had content that could be perceived, I guess, as offensive. Can you unpack that just a little bit more? Like, what was the nature of some of that content? What did that poor history teacher post uh, that got him in the mix? So in the case of the history teacher, uh, Scott Alsop, uh, I spoke to him last night. He had uh, probably about 10 to 20 videos that were just uh, newsreel footage of Hitler speeches that he keeps mm. up online for uh, history students. They're all preparing for their final exams right now, so he was kind of bummed that they wouldn't be able to use them. Um, 
And his channel was mainly just an educational one. For the other channels that were demonetized, they were ones that um, you know had your kind of usual rogues gallery of terrible nonsense on YouTube. You know, people calling Ilhan Omar an anti-Semite, or people who were putting anti-vax stuff up, or anti-trans stuff. And you know, there's a lot of channels that would come out on Twitter later and be like, "Oh, it's just humor. It's just jokes." And it also seemed like it was very indiscriminate, like. It, it almost felt like an AI had swooped through the website, looked for like any sort of like hashtag that seemed bad, and then banned one or two videos or demonetized the channel. And based on, once again, a tweet that was put in a Twitter thread, maybe these channels can be remonetized if they delete their content. It's really unclear. And BuzzFeed, has, BuzzFeed News has reached out to YouTube for more information, but... Uh, we haven't gotten any yet. <laughs> I almost wonder because, you know, everything has just kind of seemed so like by the wheel of their pants that they're flying. Mm -hmm. If it's really because our culture is just so invested in YouTube that there's really no way that we, I mean, it would be very hard for us all to pull out of it, you know, if it came to it. So do you think that, that there is a solution to this or that we really, or is it that YouTube has grown so powerful that really we're, we're just bound to follow whatever it does? I mean, right before I got here, like I saw Ted Cruz's tweeting about this. Like, I <laughs> damn, mean, I, I, I think Ted Cruz Twitter. <laughs> yeah, because you know, like I think everyone's kind of figured out that these platforms are really big and people care about them. So anytime a change happens, it becomes like a threat to our democracy. Even though you could probably argue the platforms themselves are a threat to our democracy. <laughs> but I think with when it comes to YouTube, what it is is that their their user base is really active and they really believe that they are their own megaphone. So when anything happens on that platform, they take it as an, a, a chance to use that megaphone really loudly. So, you know, in a perfect world, YouTube would have made a policy change. It would have been really thought out. It wouldn't be based maybe solely on AI. And it would have, like, had actual ramifications. Instead, they drop piecemeal updates throughout the day. They kind of pick and choose random things to ban or demonetize. And then it just gives their creators infinite amounts of ammunition for more videos. And what's hilarious is it's their algorithm that's kind of incentivized this, right? Like a YouTuber makes a video off another YouTuber's video off another YouTuber's video because it's a good way to get traffic, it's a good way to run trending topics, and it's a good way to express cool. yourself. Yeah. yeah. So it's like they've created this never-ending hell mouth, and now we're all in it. Well, we will definitely keep our eye on the story. <laughs> Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Christopher Rowland tweeted, Pfizer has had clues its blockbuster drug could prevent Alzheimer's. Why didn't it tell the world? Brennan tweeted, I'm still disturbed by this. Pfizer kept quiet about a drug that could potentially reduce the risk of Alzheimer's, Washington Post reports. The reporter behind this story, Christopher Rowland, joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Now, this story is about the drug Enbrel. What is it and what did Pfizer researchers discover about it? So what this this story uh, is is it's a really rare glimpse into sort of the decision making uh, inside a major pharmaceutical corporation around one of their drug drugs. They discovered that Enbrel, which drug for rheumatoid arthritis, actually had a potential side benefit uh, of preventing Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it uh, Enbrel targets inflammation, and, and there's a link between between inflammation and Alzheimer's in the main. And so they had done a little bit of research just look, looking at um, uh, insurance claims data, thousands of, ins of insurance claims, and they found uh, a, sig a statistical signal within that data that showed that Enbrel could have a 64% chance of reducing the, uh, of someone getting Alzheimer's in the first place. 
but so insurance data data is not any kind of de- definitive study. It doesn't, doesn't really prove anything, but it is, does provide a, sig- a signal for further research. And so what, what became controversial uh, within the company and now uh, uh, out as well, well is that um, um, Pfizer decided one on not a clinical trial, which would be the sort of the gold standard to figure out whether the, the signal was true. And then uh, secondly, uh, they did not to publish or uh, publicize outside the company that they had, had discovered this potential signal. What did Pfizer tell you uh, when you reached out to them to report this story? So Pfizer's uh, uh, main um, um, uh, talking point on this is that they believe the science. So, you know, and, and there's a lot of value for debate here, here about whether or not uh, claims analysis, statistical analysis d- d- based on, uh, you know, patient record, record it can be, be trusted. And in this case, they say that they didn't trust this data at all. Uh, and that they didn't believe that Enbrel could well could work this, and that therefore they didn't want to um, publicize it because they didn't want anybody to get to get their hopes up, and or, and or they didn't want researchers going on uh, a dead end. Well, certainly a fascinating story, Christopher. Thanks for joining us. Sure thing. And here's a statement from Pfizer to the Washington Post. The company told the Post that it decided during its three years of internal reviews that Enbrel did not show promise for Alzheimer's prevention because the drug does not directly reach brain tissue. It deemed the likelihood of a successful clinical trial to be low. So we'll leave that story there. But before we go to break, we wanted to acknowledge that today is the 75th anniversary of D-Day when Allied troops landed on the shores of the French coastline to fight Nazi Germany. USA Today tweeted, Tom Rice was part of the U.S.'s Army 101st Airborne Division when he first jumped into Normandy in 1944. Wow. And you can see him there at age 97, making the jump again. Wow. I mean, impressive. Yeah, it's an important I history. Could, I don't even know if I can make that jump now. I definitely could not. <laughs> yeah, 97. 97. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, later on in the show, Alex is sitting down with actor Alexandra Shipp, but up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Welcome back. It is time for Fire Tweets. Show is. You ready? Yes, I am ready. Let's do it. Okay. Emily, you tweeted, so much of being an adult is bringing a bottle of wine someone brought to your house to someone else's house. And it's just like an infinite loop. It is. It never ends. Just that one bottle of wine going around. Around Brooklyn. Never stops. It really does never stop. It never makes it to Manhattan. It doesn't. (laughs) Have you ever actually gotten stuck drinking the passed around bottle of wine? That's no good. That's how you know you had a bad day. When you come home from work and you look around and all that's there is the bottle of wine that's been in everybody's house. Yeah. I literally have that that bottle of wine I'm just thinking about my kitchen right now. It's like sitting in my kitchen. I'm like, when will it feel that bad? That's when you know you hit rock bottom. (laughs) Delissa, you tweeted, is having a child at this point even ethical? I mean... That is a real question. Fair. Yes. I ask myself that often. Yeah. Especially with all the police brutality and everything that's going on. And then yep. also just the world. The I mean, world. Everywhere you go, there's an issue. Absolutely. That's real. It's real dark, but here we are. <laughs> okay, ready? <laughs> Hallie, you tweeted, Luther Vandross, and possibly... Can I take you out tonight? Six-year-old me, to a movie, to a park. I'll have you home before it's dark. 
Mind you, knowing you can't <laughs> even go on no date at six. But also, at six. who was six when this song came out? Who are all of you retweeting that you were six? Because you're making me feel old. How that, old were you? Or about age, age around? All I know is I am 29 and too young <laughs> to be feeling old by this tweet. Like, yeah. I'm 32, so honestly, I'm with you with this. You are not alone. <laughs> well, we were, I was definitely, there was a teen at the end of my age. I'm yeah. sure. I just don't know which teen. Which teen it was. Well, that tweet was ageist, and we can just leave it there. That's how we feel. If we must. Brent, you tweeted, me leaving the pregame messy and ready to embarrass myself in public. Who that- got the footage of me this weekend? <laughs> did y'all, did y'all, did somebody text that? I text that to you in confidence. <laughs> I put, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know what? I only did that because I, it resonates with me. I have been the person who's like so excited for the pregame. I show up in my cute outfit. I have my lipstick on. And then I just somehow despite my age, do not yet know my own limits. And it's a real thing. I, just happened. The I mean, my college, <laughs> the unofficial college slogan where I went to school was we pregame harder than you party. Is literally <laughs> what, what the slogan was. So yeah, a good pregame can go. Yeah. Left. Oh, it can. Okay. Hey, you ready Indeed. for five? Tweet yeah, of the day? Tweet of the day comes from D Money. 40 years from now, have you ever had a four loco? You may be entitled to a financial compensation. I'm honestly hoping it's less than 40 years from now because I need these student loans paid off now. And I blame college for the four local I drank because I was broke and in need of a drink. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I too am old enough to remember the original Four Loco. I know what it was like to go and buy a real Four Loco. From the gas station. Indeed. And I may have also (laughs) indulged in similar drinks like Sparks, which was like $3. You just need like one and a half cans and you're tumbling out of the pregame looking like that other tweet. I'm not going to name all the cheap (laughs) I've had in my day, but just know, hopefully a financial compensation comes my way. Yeah, you deserve it. I've gone through the garden variety of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, coming up, I'm sitting down with actor Alexandra Shipp, who stars in X-Men and Shaft, but up next, we're going live from the district. Welcome back. Here's a tweet from the New York Times. Joe Biden's presidential campaign confirmed that he still supports the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits the use of federal funds to pay for most abortions. And here's a tweet from Imani Gandhi of Rewire.News. It's a good time to repost this old peace of mind on the Hyde Amendment. Public funding for abortion isn't really a thing, but here's why it should be. Here to talk with us about the Hyde Amendment, Biden, and everything else is Imani Gandhi. Good morning. Good morning. First, tell us what the Hyde Amendment is and what Biden's support of the amendment means for the re- for reproductive health care. Uh, the Hyde Amendment is an, uh, a rider that's attached to the Health and Human Services Appropriations Bill. Um, it began to be attached to that um, funding in 1976, and it prevents the public funding of abortion, except in the cases of rape, incest, and when the health of the pregnant person is in danger. Mm. Um, Go ahead. No, please continue. Oh, I was just going to say it, it's essentially um, discrimination in the healthcare uh, in the delivery of healthcare services um, because it affects only Medicaid patients, and I believe people, um, Native American people, who re- who rely on the on on the government for their healthcare services, and it also affects um, people in the, in the military. And essentially, it prohibits low-income people from getting public funding to pay for abortions, which oftentimes means that they either cannot pay for them at all and are forced to deliver an unwanted pregnancy to term, or it means that they have to take extra time to sort of scrounge up funds to pay for an abortion out of pocket, which for low-income people can take a very long time, which may then ultimately time them out of being able to obtain abortion at all. 
Mm, it sounds like this really disproportionately impacts certain folks um, over others, and that is obviously a really important piece of this conversation. Um, can you talk a little bit about where Biden falls compared with the rest of the Democratic field when it comes to Hyde? Well, the great thing about um, this election cycle is that I believe most of the 2020 candidates, I mean, there's so many, there's like 600 candidates, so I'm not sure what each one of them believes, but I know the main <laughs> candidates, you know, Warren, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, um, there's some guy who's running from, from the state of Washington, Tinsley, I believe, um, had a really great tweet on it yesterday. They all seem to agree, it seems to be the Democratic platform now that the Hyde Amendment should be repealed and that it is simply unfair to assign ability to obtain healthcare services based on your income level. Um, it's discrimination. And so it's good to see that that conversation has shifted dramatically. Um, and I think partially due to Hillary Clinton's support for repealing Hyde. And I think her support for repealing Hyde is um, basically a testament to the activism of abortion rights advocates who pushed her really hard to go to move left on that issue point um joe biden is out of touch in many ways but particularly on this issue he is just out of touch with the rest of the democratic field yeah and it's just particularly confusing since you know most of the people affected by Hyde are would be people of color and that's the vote that's so important for the democrats um in the presidential mm -hmm. election it has proven to be um i also want to talk to you about how Hyde compares to other, that amendment compares to other countries and where they stand with um, abortion. Are we, is this evidence of like how America is behind in that fact or is this in line with what they're doing? You know, I don't, that's a good question and I've never been asked that before. I don't know what the public funding of abortion situation is like overseas actually. I really can't answer that, but that's a good question and I should look into it. Yeah. Um, but irrespective of what I mean, we this country tends to export its abortion policies depending upon who is in the White House at a particular time. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the gag rule, you know, the sort of Mexico policy, which prohibits providing funds overseas to organizations that refer people to abortion. And now under Trump that even talk about abortion. Um, so when it comes to especially developing countries. Developing countries rely on us for a lot of funding for their family planning. And because abortion is a part of family planning, sort of kneecapping overseas organizations from talking about abortion makes it difficult for them to provide a full range of healthcare services for the people that need them. Yeah. And I want to also ask you about what happened when the North Carolina um, abortion Bill Vito, because as a former resident, I went to college in North Carolina. I lived there for four years. I was really disappointed to see that hap that news headline. I believe that the, that they didn't have the votes to override the veto. So I think you should be happy. Oh, okay. <laughs> Are oh, you talking okay. about the born alive? I'm disappointed to see that. Yeah, like I think yeah. I maybe I worded it wrong, but like disappointed to see that the ban happened. Glad that it's being vetoed. But yeah. can you talk about oh, right. that decision? I mean, what yeah, I mean, it's this North Carolina is one of very of a lot of states that are right now just sort of dropping the hammer when it comes to abortion rights. And I think that they have been sort of impelled to do that by Donald Trump and by the people that Trump has sort of installed in the Department of Health and Human Services. We're talking about people who are abortion hardliners. They're very, very conservative, evangelical Christians, um, you know, people from Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a very conservative Christian, anti-LGBT, anti-woman, anti-pregnant people law firm. So um, it's it, it becomes difficult to, to sort of 
wrap your head around the number of laws that have been passed over the last, even just the last year, um, but in particular since Trump has been in office because it's just vast. You know what I mean? We are at a critical point when it comes to abortion policy in this country. We're at a critical point where it come, when it comes to the ways in which courts are going to begin to examine these sorts of laws and decide whether or not they're constitutional. So, you know, the fact that um, there, there weren't enough votes to override the veto in North Carolina is great. Um, other states aren't so lucky because Republicans sort of have a stranglehold on so many state legislatures. Mm. Well, we are at a critical time indeed. Thank you so much for joining us, Amani. Yes, thank, thank you very much for having me. And Amani is also the host of the podcast Boom Lawyered, which you can check out at rewired.news. Up next, I talk to Beati Prenzlu about rhino conservation. Stay tuned. That was such a great interview. Supermodel and animal activist Beati Prinsloo posted this video of her trip back home to Namibia, writing my journey back to Namibia to help spread awareness, to get involved and educated. I want my kids to see and know Africa the way I did, where all Africa's animals thrive. It's up to us to make a change. And I'm thrilled to have Beati joining me now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for joining me. And as I mentioned, you went back home for this video. How did you get interested in saving rhinos in the first place? <laughs> Well, one of the main reasons are standing right in front of me. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was just, I just had my two kids. I, I felt like it was really necessary for me to set an example to them. And Ginger um, from Save the Rhino Namibia, Save the Rhino Trust Namibia, um, reached out to me. And it just really, I'm also from Namibia. My parents still live there. This was a, a thing that just made sense for me. And I was really um, anxious to help and make a difference. So... That's how the journey kind of started. Growing up, do you recall uh, seeing rhinos in particular or seeing really any animals that you want to preserve for your kids today? You know, that's a tough question because Africa, all of their animals and all, you know, all of Africa makes up Africa's soul. And I feel like the heart of that. Um, growing up, we did see a lot of a lot of these animals. But I remember as a kid, my dad used to say, you know, 10 years ago, we would see so many so many more rhinos and elephants around and lions and it just the, the numbers are going down and down and I just feel a real responsibility to spread awareness especially for rhinos I think that they're kind of put in the back the back seat you know because I feel like elephants and lions take the front the front <laughs> which you know and all all these animals need help but um I really this like punk rock image of a rhino just came to mind and I really wanted to be their voice as well and especially the people doing the work on the ground. Mm. Well, one thing you mentioned is that the numbers have really gone down. What's going on specifically with black rhinos and poaching? Um, you know, poaching is such an issue because I think you can really end poaching if, you, if the demand from the outside stops. So with the black rhino, there's so much more um, uh, solitary and in Namibia, we have the largest free roaming black rhinos left in the whole world, basically. And we are really trying to protect that. You know, it's a very special, special thing to still have an animal so free in its own natural habitat and environment. And SRT are doing incredible work on the ground, tracking these animals, making sure nothing, um, you know, nobody, no one, none of them got poached. And I just wanted to be these trackers voice and kind of tell everyone, you know, what incredible 
work they do. So wait, when you went there in the video, yeah. were you like spending time with the trackers? What exactly does their work look like? like yeah. Explain this to me a little bit. Um, so we went to all different places. Um, there's so many people doing incredible work in the country that we couldn't really stay just in one area. So we went to all these different places, but one area that the SRT trackers work out of is, um, is Desert Rhino Camp, and it's in the middle of the desert. And these trackers go out for 21 days a month to track on foot. They cover like 28 miles a day in the desert, in the sun, but they're from those areas, so they're adapted too. It's like this beautiful, they're like taking care of their, their animals, you know, that they grew up with. And um, it's just beautiful to see their passion and, and the, um, the teams that infiltrate, if there's any sign of poaching going on, they have the um, intelligence group um, run by Tommy, who's an incredible guy. So there's just so much going on on the ground, which makes me really hopeful and excited. Mm, a whole intelligence Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we take our rhino, our rhino yeah, very uh, seriously. Yeah. Well, one of the things you also said in this video is that uh, this is the year of actions over words for you. So what actions can people take if they're feeling moved by this issue? Um, you know, I think spreading awareness is very easy nowadays. I think social media brings us all together. Um, so spreading awareness, donating, um, you know, these guys on the front lines doing the hard work every day need support from us, um, need boots to literally go and walk for 21 days. They need, you know, gas for their cars, food, water. Um, and then I strongly believe in voting for someone that's environmentally conscious. I think the youth especially have a real fire in them, especially when it comes to conservation and, and environmental issues. And I think it's really time to get serious and 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 inspire the youth to make that change. Mm. Well, uh, you recently made some news talking about uh, the number of children that your husband wants to have five. <laughs> yeah. um, and now that he has more free time on his hands, are there things that you're able to do with him, uh, you know, that you weren't able to do before? Yeah, we're really excited. You know, this is a different chapter in our life. And, um, and I met him when he was super busy and between The Voice and, and um, touring. And now he's actually on tour at the moment. When he comes home, we're we're free. We can like do whatever we want. We're like, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? So it's an exciting time. We're really, um, yeah, we're stoked. Yeah. Well, speaking <laughs> of home, one of the things that I learned from watching some of your, you doing the press rounds yeah. um, to talk about this particular issue is that Ellen had a hand in naming your child yeah. Dusty. I also read that Ellen and Portia bought your old home. Are yeah. you like buddies like that? Do you like talk about real estate or anything? You know, Adam and um, Ellen are really close, and uh, Portia is incredible, and I've met them a bunch of times. Um, Adam and Ellen love real estate, so their <laughs> passion for moving and, and real estate has really gotten them so close. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's funny. We, we really cross paths a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, guys. Talk about thank this. you. I really appreciate the, the time. Yeah, and stay tuned for more AM to DM coming up next. I'm joined now by Alexandra Shipp. She has not one, but two movies coming out this month. She's reprising her role as Storm in the new X-Men movie, Dark Phoenix, and stars in Shaft. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. In this amazing jumpsuit, no less. Thank you. Yes, always love serving a look on this couch. So this is your second X-Men movie. Yes. Did your approach to playing Storm evolve at all? 
One hundred percent. When when I first did Apocalypse, that was supposed to be in 1982. So now we're in 92, and so that's a completely different yeah, person. That's a long stretch of time. It's too. A good amount of time yeah. to, to be different. <laughs> so I wanted to kind of show that evolution. I wanted to show that she was she is now an adult, but also that uh, she still has all of the same problems that she had before, which mm. is what is the right thing to do. Yeah, still working through it. Yeah, what does I think it, we all are. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so what is it like returning to work with the same crew again? Is it a little bit like that feeling of coming back to summer camp and seeing the same people? Oh, again? yeah, 100%. <laughs> we all walk on set, we're like, you, 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 oh my gosh. You know, yeah. it's always so nice to see everyone, especially the cast. We've all become such a big family. And so there's, it's nice to kind of see everyone. It's like Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned becoming like family. Um, you're not only co-stars with Sophie Turner, but you are also dear friends. Mm-hmm. How important is it to have that kind of camaraderie when you're on set working on a project like this? It's not that important, hmm. but it is a plus. Hmm. It is very much so a plus. Every every actor that I've worked with is, has been talented and is able to show up and do their job. But when you have that extra connection with someone, it just makes it that much better. It's not necessary, but it is so nice to have. Hmm. It's just really nice. Do you ever get to talk to her about her Game of Thrones stuff while you were like on set doing things together? I mean, I'd try, but she wouldn't tell me anything. <laughs> She's so good at that. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, one of the things you recently said about playing Storm is that she doesn't get so many lines mm-hmm. in this movie. Mm-hmm. So what would be your dream solo film for her? Um, you know, there's a there's a few different comics that I that I really love mm. that particularly particularly speak about uh Storm in in a, in a forefront kind of narrative. But I would just love to see a Storm really kind of coming into her own as the matriarch of the X-Men. I think that that's been so key with uh, the cartoons and with a lot of the comics, and I'd love to see that in the films. Mm. Speaking of matriarch, you've actually never met Halle Berry, who originated the role of Storm. I know. (laughs) Do you know what you would say to her if you actually met her? Would you ask her about this character? I'd be like, I love you. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like I'd be so starstruck. I feel like it'd be so weird. I don't know. It'd be like meeting Beyonce. You're just kind of like... (sighs) You would just be like, you are... An icon. And, yeah, like yeah. I can't, I don't know what I would say. I don't know. Yeah. Well, this show airs on Twitter, as you know, and you haven't been on Twitter in a minute. Are you taking a little break? I'm taking a really nice long sabbatical really from nice Twitter. Thing. Yeah, I think that uh, the hard thing about Twitter is that you don't get to say the things that you want to say mm. uh, fully. And then people will take the things that you do say and mm. try and twist it into their own narrative. And I don't like that. I don't mm. like giving people power over the things that I say because when I say them, I mean them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really real for me and really true to me. And I don't want anyone speaking for me but me. Mm, I hear that. And you said that you're really proud to be outspoken. And I know there's been some conversations and people saw some of the remarks you made mm-hmm. um, about this role as being colorist. Yeah. Would you have gone back and done anything different about that? No. No. Just what I kept it yeah. on moving? Yeah. 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 I say what I say and I mean what I mean. And and I'm always open to uh, conversations that, that further a narrative that, that makes sense. But when it comes to bigotry or racism, I just, I have no, I have no room for it in my heart or in my soul. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of being so outspoken, you also spoke recently about your own struggle with mental health issues, with yes. depression and anxiety. Why was it important to you to be open about that? I think that, uh, especially within the African-American community, we don't speak about mental health. And uh, it's real, and 
it's not our fault. And I think that the more and more that we talk about it, the more and more that people don't struggle in silence. Mm. And if I could speak on something that then um, touches another person and makes them feel like they're not alone or that they could actually reach out for help because mm -hmm. they're not blaming themselves for their own mental health. Um, and then I'm doing something right. Mm. I'm doing something right on this planet. Yeah, have you heard from anybody or have you been surprised at all by the reaction to telling your story? Uh, yeah, honestly, you know, it's not surprising when you talk about mental health and people go, oh, yeah, me too, Queen, because so many people struggle from it and it's, and it's a spectrum. There could, mm. You could sometimes just be really depressed or you could have suicidal thoughts. I mean, it's, 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 it fluctuates mm. depending mm. on the person and uh, we'd be surprised how many people actually are affected by it. Mm. Well, uh, this is a very busy time for you. As I said a little bit earlier, um, you're also in Shaft and you star along with Richard Rapp Samuel L. Jackson, and Regina Hall. What did you learn from them when you were making this movie? How to be a pro. Okay. <laughs> I can they only are imagine. <laughs> yeah, they are pros to the umpteenth degree and really, really great people as well. So that was, it was really nice to kind of uh, see that you can not only be a mega superstar, mm. but also be a really nice person. Mm. Excellent. Well, Surprising. Listen, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with yeah, me. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And Dark Phoenix comes out this Friday, and Shaft is out next Friday. Up next, Stephanie is talking to the host of the true crime comedy podcast, My Favorite Murder. I am so excited to be joined by our next guest. They are the hosts of the podcast, My Favorite Murder, and are now the authors of the book, Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered, The Definitive How-To Guide. Two people I have been trying to get on AM's DM since we launched, Karen Kogarev and Georgia Hardstark. Yay. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Now that I've finished fangirling all over <laughs> you guys, I have been a huge fan of your podcast, I think since 2017, and I think one of the reasons is I have been obsessed with true crime forever. And you guys kind of put into words something that I didn't really articulate to myself until I heard your podcast, which is I didn't realize so many other people were into true crime and especially into murder. And I know you guys have talked about always being into true crime as well. When did you first have the realization of, oh, this is something that a lot of people might be into? I mean, it's taken so long. It's the kind of thing that uh, we bonded because we realized we were both into true crime and it's not something you can talk to a lot of people about. So when you find someone who can do that, you get really excited and you're like, do you know about this case and that case? Um, yeah, you learn that early, yeah. that like it's not really a general party conversation. Yeah. Um, there's definitely people who are, will turn and walk away from you. If you're like, hey, did you hear about Michael Peterson? <laughs> just like, <laughs> goodbye. Yeah. I've definitely started talking about a serial killer and just watch people be like, oh my God, yeah. what's wrong with you? You're either in or you're out. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very clear. Exactly. So you have built this great community of murderinos who are all obsessed with true crime. And before your live shows, you guys always do this disclaimer that we're a true crime po comedy podcast. You might not think these two things can go together, but you explain that they can. Can you explain to our viewers what you mean by that? I mean, it really is not, the, the comedy isn't about the murder and isn't about that part. The comedy is that Karen and I are funny people who like to talk to each other and make each other laugh and have a lot of anxiety about true crime and murder. So break up that conversation with, you know, hopefully some, some funny banter. And it, I know a lot of your fans say this, but I didn't really realize probably one of the reasons I like true crime so much is because I have anxiety <laughs> because I want to I want to know everything. So if I'm ever in a bad situation, I know I can fight my way out of it or try to at least. 
I think that true crime is such a coping me mechanism for so many women because we are taught from such a young age that we do need to be afraid. Do you, and a lot of your fans are women. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think, yeah. yeah, it's for the anxiety part, it's almost comforting to know that you're not crazy. You know, you read about these cases and you're like, see, I knew I should be afraid and I <laughs> knew I shouldn't like, you know, walk to my car at night without pepper spray. It's, it's kind of the comfort to me in my anxiety. And uh, I think a lot of women have that just naturally. Yeah, it's like you're, you're just running scenarios. Like if you know what the worst possible thing that could happen in this scenario would be, then in a way you're prepared you know, whether or not it happens to you. It's just kind of like, you know what the possibilities are. I think that gives people comfort. One of the things that I really wanted to touch on while talking to you guys is I love your mantra of fuck politeness because it really makes so much sense to me that there are so many women who end up in bad situations because we're taught from such a young age that we need to kind of just go along with it. And, you know, if a guy is aggressively stalking us or hitting on us, we just need to be nice about it. And... It's really, it's such bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know how else to say it. Can you, can you say that more eloquently than I can? No. Probably not. You're completely right. It's total bullshit. And, you know, I think that part of the reason that we can talk about these cases and have empathy with them is because we both put ourselves in situations that we uh, were in because we were, we were polite and we didn't know how to get out of without being a bitch. And so what we're saying is, being a bitch is okay if it's about your safety, you know? As, as a lifelong bitch, um, <laughs> I've never, it's, I was kind of raised by a woman who was like, yeah, I think you should be a bitch first and ask questions later. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's, there was a little bit of that. Uh, it sometimes surprises me how much people, j just hearing uh, one person say, yeah, this is okay, people go, oh my God, I never realized that it was okay. I mean, that's, it's kind of mind-blowing, but, but it's great. I mean, it's what Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is entirely based on, is like, don't let anybody lead you to an underground bunker, you know what I mean, <laughs> against yeah. your will. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Conceptually. So I just finished your book over the weekend, and I think a lot of people would be surprised that there's actually not a lot of true crime itself in the book. It's more of just you guys writing about your lives and your experiences. Why did you decide to go that route rather than, like you said, a coffee table book with big photos of true crime? <laughs> they wouldn't let us do a coffee yeah. table book. We really tried. Yeah, we didn't want to do the writing. And then they were like, you have to open your heart out and pour pour it out. Um, Karen keeps saying that we're not experts in true crime or journalism or what <laughs> Anything, else? Writing. Really? But yeah. What we are experts in is our own lives. So we just figured let's write what we know. Yeah. There's so many people that are great true crime journalists that are doing, you know, amazing work writing books like that. And it's like, even to begin to do that, you know, we just aren't there. And that's not it's really also not what the show is because we basically are taking a, you know, a bunch of Wikipedia articles about these cases and just repeating them. It's not our, it's our writing just interpretively. So it's like then to turn around, we can't just turn around and start writing true crime books when we basically are just ripping off true crime authors to do our show. <laughs> so we had to do the thing that we actually uh, know about and you know, have experience in, which is constant failure. <laughs> But it's kind of the essence of what the show has turned into. You know, it obviously started out with you guys reading about true crime, but it has turned into all these different mantras that people get tattoos of and <laughs> sweatshirts of and all of that good stuff, right? Yeah. 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 Unexpected. <laughs> we just say shit and then people are like, 
Remember when you said that shit? That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> or that means a lot to me. See my tattoo? It's very surprising. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, congrats, guys, on the book and all of your success. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered is on sale now, and more AM to DM is up next. Welcome back. I was looking at Twitter mm-hmm. and um, Mrs. Smith tweeted, I'm not that into true crime, but mm-hmm. I love my fave murder. The way they talk about their own struggles with mental illness has really huh. helped my me through my own shit. Interesting. I never thought about like a true crime podcast helping yeah. me with mental stuff, but I keep hearing so much hype about true crime podcasts. And I'm yeah. like, maybe I should give it and listen to one. Yeah, you're intrigued. Like I did like this first season of Serial. Yeah, I feel yeah. like everybody was everybody that was one. It was like that like tried season two, and I was like, meh. Yeah, it was okay. It so was I don't know. How about you? You know, I feel similarly. I was really gripped by Serial. I think that I am interested in true crime that can unpack like previous cases and add value and make us question the criminal justice system and unpack yeah. why things add context around that. Or I'm interested in also hearing more about victims or survivors who you know we don't get to hear from as much. So I would be here for. True crime podcast podcast about that stuff. Yeah. I love a podcast. Though. Love a podcast. I get all into the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we also got this tweet from Princess Slaya, who said, this interview is fantastic. Um, talking about our conversation with Amani Gandhi about uh, everything that's happening with abortion, including Joe Biden's stance on the Hyde Amendment. And it was just so great. Like, I felt like Amani just added so much depth to the conversation. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah. And really important to really, I think, unpack again just how these bans disproportionately impact some people. Something over the course of my reporting on reproductive health care is that we know white, wealthy women will always be able to access abortions. And that is so yeah. real because I, when, I, when I saw, when the abortion ban happened, especially when the election happened and it was, mm. you know, the stat about majority of white women voting in mm-hmm. conservatives, I was really wondering how that balanced with reproductive rights. But then, like you said, I'm realizing that really it's the people who need public health care that yeah. are going to be affected because you can always get private health care, even if it's deemed illegal. Like they're not the ones who are going to get arrested for having the abortions privately. Yeah. Yeah. Such an important conversation. It's such an important conversation yeah. that we should keep having. Definitely. We will. We'll keep talking about it on the show. Yeah. I hope Imani does really. She said she was going to go look into how the yeah. high amendment compares to uh, with other countries. Yeah. The amendment. So I'm interested to see how that yeah, goes too to with know. public funding. We'll have her back on once we get that answer. Yes, we will. <laughs> and, um, with more tweets, Rachel Hey Girl Field tweeted this after Alex's sit down with Alexandra Ship. A lot of Alex's on that couch. A lot of today. <laughs> Storm was robbed in the movies. She deserves more. Yeah. I agree. I'm yeah. waiting for a good Storm, Storm film. And as much as I enjoy Alexandra Ship, um, I also would love to see like a Kiki Lane Indeed. or somebody who looks like Storm yes. in the comics. I hear you. You know, but I also just am here for that role, period. Because even with Hallie, like, I want a Storm film. I feel like, you know, especially after Black Panther Mm -hmm. and, you know, all the things that are happening, we would love to see her get her moment. Absolutely. Because I even think in the comics, like, Storm kind of finds her, I don't know. I'm not going to get too much. I don't know. But yes, I totally hear you on all the above. (laughs) Well, we wanted to know if you think the Beehive was justified in tracking down the woman who dared to displease Queen Bee. I say so, yes. Yes. Or were they doing the most? (laughs) Blasian FMA says, it might have been the most, but I was right there copying and pasting bees into that first comment. <laughs> so there's that. 
yes, I love it. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to confirm nor deny if I pasted any bees into any comments, you know, but I'm not mad at who did, okay? Yeah. Princess Slayana added, definitely <laughs> doing the most. Someone brought up a good point with that when Russ and Sierra first started dating, future stands were spamming her stuff with purple emojis and shit like, it's just too much in any scenario. I have to respectfully disagree because I kind of feel like those are two different things. Like I was very anti the future hive spamming Sierra mm-hmm. for finding a good man who didn't have, you know, who mm-hmm. wanted to actually marry her and not cheat on her. Like let her live her life. I think that this woman did something, you know, that was a little disrespectful. And while I don't think we, it should have gone to a point where she had to shut down her comment section, that is a bit whatever. I'm here for a little teasing, like, back up. Zach, you know, the one thing back we really your ass okay. about back in that seat. What, what I would say is, why don't we have a B sound effect at this point? For all Zach, this your ass show, back in the please, seat. can we make that happen? I feel for when we, when I'm we gonna go record cover. that in the back after yeah, this. Yeah, I'll, I'll lay down the track. Yes, I would very much like that. So, well, one other thing that we talked a bunch about on today's show was this one fire tweet about the bottle of wine that gets passed around to all of your friends and. In between segments, we had some feels about this, about the, recycling we, Most the wine. of our producers in the back. <laughs> it be your own producers. But like, wine is wine. Yes. And I'm kind of like, okay, sure, but it's not always good wine. It's like, not always good wine. simply that bottle of wine and you're drinking it and you're like, I don't even like this. Yeah. Like, I don't even like the taste of this. I just am drinking it. You yeah. know what I mean? I just am. But there was a good tip about make, using it to make sangria. Yes, that was a good tip. You know, so mixing maybe, it up, you know, remixing you know, your like a wine that's going bad, make it a punch. Um, something that I have done in the past is like, you know, when you just have a bottle of wine that's open for a couple of days and you're like, eh, I'm not sure about this. I've gotten St. Germain, which is like another Ooh. kind of liqueur. Pour a little bit of that in. Up the alcohol makes it a little sweet. You classy. Yes, thank St. you. St. Germain. Well, there I'm probably walking around with like some ice cubes in my <laughs> glass of white wine. So, you know, not too classy, but just trying a little bit. Just a little bit. You know, we, you know, high-low balance. High-low, exactly. You always got to mix your highs exactly. and your lows. Like, I'll be you. drinking $10 wine in like a very nice wine-stemmed glass because I love like a good wine glass. It makes glass. you feel good when you have like the, I like the nice stem. Yes, yeah, good. yeah, good. I get it. Well, it has been so fun co-hosting the show with yes, you. Yes, girls' yes. day, ladies' day. I was going to say ladies' night, but it's morning <laughs> time, so. That'll be for the a.m. to p.m. night show. Anyways, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you to our guest. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to our guests, Ryan Broderick, Stephanie McNeil, Amani Gandhi, Christopher Rowland, Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, Alexandra Schiff, and Behati Prinslow. Before we go, we want to remind you to check out BuzzFeed's UK's new show, What to Watch, which premieres today on Twitter. Be sure to follow BuzzFeed UK on Twitter for that. I will definitely be checking out that show. Yes. And Zach and I will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah. I'm gonna go drink my white wine.